and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the pedagogic podcast with the pop culture core. Today we'll be answering the bloody stupid question, how did the Apollo 13 crew use constructionism to return safely to Earth? Um, this was the, the safe one of lots of potential questions for this episode. <laughs> anyway, I am Mike Collins. I am a learning designer at the Open University, imposter syndrome incarnate, and a man with a microphone. And joining me on this sunny afternoon, we have... Uh, I'm Mark Childs. I'm a senior learning designer at Durham University, PhD in education, and as a seven-year-old had an airfix model of a Saturn V rocket. So I've been into this stuff since very early age. Woo. I watched it as a six-year-old. I watched the landing on the moon and all that. I, I, I didn't mean, want to like, say that. I didn't want to like age you, Mark. I, <laughs> no, I was, no, like, no. I was thinking to myself, was Mark there? <laughs> I wasn't actually on the moon, but I was there watching telly, yeah. <laughs> so listeners who've um, maybe not seen your face before and imagined you as some um, sort of smooth-skinned 20-year-old have now kind of readjusted yeah, their mental image. Yeah, illusions <laughs> shattered. <I'm>, yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'm Becky Cohen and I'm a learning designer uh, at the Open University. Also, I would say imposter um, syndrome incarnate. And um, yeah, and oh, proper film geek. That's me. And 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 doing, is it doctorate? Oh, in, sorry, yeah. Doing, doctorate doing doctorate in being a film geek. <laughs> and indeed, yeah, doing um, doing a doctorate in film and cultural studies. So yeah, all things hero- heroism, hero heroism. So yeah, and, and therefore, obviously, our resident expert on Tom Hanks movies. Oh, of course. Not. Ah, that's cool. <laughs> what? I watched, um, was it Terminal for the first time the other day? Um, the one where he's the, the the foreign fellow who's stuck in the um, the airport terminal. Oh yes, yeah. Is that any good? Oh, it was incredible. It was so good. Heartwarming. I my favourite film with him as the protagonist has to be the kind of very underrated The Burbs. The Burbs. The Burbs. Yeah, um, it was a eighties film, um, and it was kind of all about neighbours and you know neighbours watching neighbours and neighbours being uh, suspicious of um, neighbourly activity such as you know being nice and um, just the kind of general American thing isn't it and um, yeah it's really good Um, and he just suspects his neighbour is um, uh, harbouring dead bodies and all sorts of things and uh, so yeah it's very good. Never heard of that before it sounds incredible. It is good. It's funny. Uh, it's Bruce Dern is in it as well. It's got a, a sort of um, a, a an older Princess Leia in it as well. So um, Carrie Fisher is the wife. Uh, yeah, it's just all about suburbia, American suburbia. Why are we doing an episode in Apollo 13? We could be doing it on, on this <laughs> yeah. incredible sounding movie. Exactly. Uh, Okay, so returning to our question, uh, it was how did the Apollo 13 crew use constructionism to return safely to Earth? So we've got two components in there. We have Apollo 13, and today we're going to be focusing on the movie, uh, which is itself kind of vaguely derived from the real life events, and constructionism. So let's break them apart in the first part of the show. Part one, the question. Okay, so um, Apollo 13, before we talk about the film, we should probably talk about the actual context of the real-life Apollo 13. Yeah, Uh, okay. Go. So, uh, okay, this was the third mission, I mean, Apollo 13. Obviously, there's 12 Apollos before that. Apollo 11 and Apollo 12 had actually landed on the moon. Um, Apollo 10s and before had been sort of like uh, preparing and getting close and all that sort of stuff. (laughs) I don't know if you've seen these things take off, but they're massive, and it's kind of like, a small cylinder on top of a bigger cylinder on top of a huge cylinder and so on. And by the time you get to the moon, you've basically got uh, three bits. You've got the command module, which is sort of like a little cone that sits on top of a cylinder, which is called the service module. And then as that gets close to the moon, you've got the lunar module. Is the it kind of it's, it's hidden in the lower bit of it. And what you get is the uh, command module, supply module sort of rotate round and then kind of dock with the lunar module. And then you've got this really weird shaped thing flying through space, which is the command module, supply module on one side docked into the lunar module, which is that weird potato shaped thing that lands on the moon that flies towards the moon that then separates your lunar module goes down. 
Um, two people go down inside that onto the moon. You've got the one left behind, which Apollo 11, it was Neil and Buzz go down to the moon on this lunar module. Michael Collins is left behind orbiting the orbiting and his little on his command module in zone and then that lands down uh they do all their kind of basing around on the moon and then the lunar module takes off again just the top bit of it connects back with the command module supply module sort of joint thing then that gets they go back into the service mod uh, command module then that little bit that's left the sort of service module command module cone and cylinder shape orbits around the moon comes back and then the final bit, that separates when it gets close to the Earth. And then the command module, which is just that little small cone that's left, lands on the Earth with those three people in it. I mean, it's a massively sophisticated and complicated process. So many different bits have to work together. And, you know, compared to what takes off, the bit that returns is, is minute. I'm not sure how many people have seen the whole process, but... But well, that's kind of how it's all supposed to fit together, basically. As you can so. tell, Mark's not really uh, not really that familiar with it. <laughs> I built these things out of when I was about seven. I built one of these, which is like half my height, and there's a number of little bits that are all connected together. And you know, we were talking about the amount of glue I must have sniffed in order to get them as a side product <laughs> of doing this. So I probably could have ended up getting to the moon on my own just from that, really. Um, so, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I just grew up with all sorts of stuff. And yeah, and so it was kind of, um, and it was, uh, Apollo 13 was kind of interestingly against a backdrop, which I think is covered in the movie, which I guess we'll talk about in a second, yeah. of waning interest yeah. in the space program. Mm. Um, but I, so... The, so that's kind of like the, the background of kind of like the technical stuff of, of how it's supposed to go. But, um, but yeah, so we're going to be focusing on the movie. So, mm-hmm. Becky, do you want to uh, just give us a quick rundown of Apollo 13, the movie? Yeah, sure. So it's um, based on the events uh, of the Apollo 13 lunar mission. Uh, astronauts Jim Lovell, Fred Hayes and uh, Jack Swigert find everything uh, is going according to plan uh, after leaving Earth's orbit, but then disaster strikes and uh, an oxygen tank explodes. And um, the scheduled moon landing is is unfortunately called off and uh, subsequent tensions within the crew and then numerous technical problems threaten the uh, astronaut survival and, of course, their safe return to Earth. And there's um, so a couple of couple of bits for me is uh, a it's a Tom Hanks movie. I know we mm-hmm. talked about Tom Hanks before, but that man's just that guy's a badge of quality on any movie. <laughs> oh, he know, is. Yeah, you'd be hard pressed to find a bad Tom Hanks movie. He is an absolute legend, isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> but it's Tom Hanks and Kevin Bacon. It's kind of like a, it's a real double whammy. Oh yeah. Who's Kevin um, Bacon? Who does he play? Jack. Jack Swigert. Ah, uh, okay. I'm not sure what 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 role that is though. Uh, I know that he stirs the tanks. So yeah, what, what role that is that? Blows it up. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's a, so there's a couple of like key disasters in the movie, aren't there? Mm. There's um, there's the initial kind of uh, tank stirring where they uh, they've got to kind of like routinely stir the oxygen tanks. I don't know, mm. presumably to prevent prevent it from getting a skin on top, like custard, <laughs> um, and then which causes it to come into contact with uh, a live wire, which causes the initial mm. explosion, which sends the craft kind of a little bit out of control and vents the uh, stuff they're going to use for uh, atmosphere, essentially yep. the breathable atmosphere stuff. Um, and it was going to be used. Was it partially fuel as well? Was the oxygen also used as fuel? The oxygen's the used for the fu- by the fuel cells, and that's the problem. Is that you? Without that oxygen tank, and I think the interesting thing as well at that point is that they weren't sure whether or not this was just um, a pressure indicator inside the tank that was faulty and showing there was no low, there was no oxygen pressure, or in fact whether or not they lost some oxygen. And I, so one of them looks out the window and sees all this gas and goes, "No, it's actually really venting oxygen." <laughs> I think that's, that's a useful tip when we look at constructionism: is actually look out the damn window sometimes. Um, yeah so um yes yeah, so basically they do have enough oxygen to keep going but the problem is to, to breathe but they don't have enough oxygen to also run the fuel cells so what they have to do is close down the and they need the command they, they need those fuel cells which run the command module and service module not for the mission but that final bit where they're landing on the earth they, that's the bit that gets them back down the last few you know the last bit so they need to preserve the oxygen in the command module to run the fuel cells 
So the decision is, let's get into the lunar module. We'll skip the bit where we land on the moon. We'll all hang out in the lunar module, which was just designed to for two people for three days. But there's enough in there to keep going. And then we'll just use the lunar module on the way back and save, save the command module and service module until we really have to use it, which is the final bit of the journey. Which is really wonderful because they weren't even sure if the command module's uh, heat shield had been damaged or not because it was yeah. a proper explosion. And there is a superb photograph, which I really hope I can remember to include in the uh, the show notes, of a, of a snap they took, um, of, of they got of the outside of, um, I think, the service module afterwards. And the mm. thing has been gutted. It's like just... Yeah. It's, it's, it's incredible that, that it got back down again without burning up in the atmosphere. Well, they could have yeah. used... Yeah, I mean, until they knew that, they, they took the guess that, that maybe there could be a problem with the service module, so we'd better not use that because they'd use the booster on that to get back. And it was like, well, no, let's not use that. Let's use... You know, we were going to learn land on the moon, and now we're not going to land on the moon. So there's enough power in the lunar module to actually um, fly the whole thing back. So instead of so basically, that's what they use. The, th- the problem then is, of course, the whole guidance system that was on the command module for steering it back. They're not using that. That's all turned off completely, uh, which is never supposed to be turned off. They have to use the guidance system that's on the lunar module, and then they're having to do all these calculations. Because remember, these things, there's less computing power on one of these than there is in the average phone now. I mean, because yeah. we're talking about the 60s and early 70s. So they're having to do it all by hand. They're having to look out the window to work out how long the bursts have got to be. But that abort guidance system that was supposed to run the lunar module down and back up again actually was enough to get them all back. And this is this is my movie trivia quiz. You can cut this bit out if you, if you need to, but abort, the abort guidance system was written by a software engineer who was pregnant, and she then went into a hospital and finished, printed it all out, finished writing the code while she was being, while she was prepared to have this baby. Finished the code, had the baby, and then uh, then not emailed, but communicated back, going, "I've written it, finished it all off. Here's your abort guidance system for your lunar module. This will run." Also, by the way, the baby was born, no problem. Guess who that baby was? Tom Hanks. Three guesses. Tom <laughs> Hanks, close. Jack Black. <laughs> No. no. <laughs> <Yes>. What? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. no. Yeah, that's Jack, crazy. Jack Black's mum wrote the abort guidance system that got them all back when they had to close down the command module, and she wrote it while she was pregnant with Jack Black. Wow. <laughs> well, do you that's, know what? That, that's incredible. Uh, that's like and the I know best. That's true cause I know. It's the best movie trivia ever. And I, re- I yeah. know that's true because I read it on Snopes.com. <laughs> Oh, okay. <laughs> Citation needed. <laughs> that is incredible. Anyway, suppose, yeah. really, so, okay, back to the... So oh, yeah, quick. So one of the other um, kind of knock-ons of this is because they're in the lunar lander, only designed for two astronauts, hmm. it's only designed to hoover a certain amount of um, carbon dioxide out of the air. Uh, actually, one of the initial um, questions I suggested for this episode was something along the lines of, uh, how did the <laughs> Apollo 13 crew use constructionism to avoid asphyxiation? At which mm. point Mark went, oh, I think you'll find they were not in danger of asphyxiation. But <laughs> of carbon dioxide poisoning, which is very different. Um, which, which is actually uh, not very different, to be honest. Which, if you can't yeah, breathe, you can't breathe, but, but there you go. <laughs> but to, to quote Futurama, it is technically correct, which is the best kind of correct. Um <laughs> And uh, but yeah, so the uh, yeah the lunar modules only had kind of a limited capacity to hoover uh, CO two uh, out for the the full complement of crew. So one of just the best bits in the movie, um, and one I think we're going to probably return yeah. to later, is uh, where they kind of they jury rig a solution between themselves and the uh, the people that's on the ground. The yeah, that's the bit I remember. Is yeah, yeah. that's the bit I remember because they get the they can get the carbon scrubbers out of the command module, but they don't fit in the lunar module. Yeah. That's the problem. Yeah. What's so. that? He's, he, I think he says you've got to get a square peg into a round hole or something, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Famous. Yeah. And it's also and when we also- discover that they have duct tape on the Apollo. That's right. Which is just yes. like, yes, yes, yes. And a bit of WD 40, maybe. <laughs> I mean, they had a problem on Apollo 11, which is the switch that like, fired the lunar module to get back broke off. So there was no switch to actually fire all the rockets to launch back into back off the moon and back towards uh, uh, the command module. 
but base but luckily buzz or neil had a biro took the biro apart slipped the biro into the broken stub of the switch and used that for um wow this is a switch so these things are basically they feel like they're i mean they're all these complicated systems interconnected and yet they're like kind of bail and and you know and string and and it's, and it's a bit wacky races isn't it yeah it is a bit wacky races but it's 60s technology you know which is trying to do something that's that really pushing what it could do that is my favorite this is genuinely and i am a modern day nerd i have next to me a beautiful beautiful hand-built pc the lovely rtx 3080 in it but i do miss the era of technology where if something broke you could pull the side off and literally <laughs> see the sizzling bit where it had broken and go oh okay i'll put a paperclip through that and that'll be fine yeah and that's basically what's going on here really yeah the other problem was water so these because they've turned off the command module they're turning off the fuel cells um the fuel cells produced water as a byproduct and they were going to be living off that water so because they've had to turn those off reserve them for the final bit um they've got no water either yeah, so they had to, um, I mean, all the Apollo astronauts lost a load of weight, didn't they? Uh, because they were yeah. on like crazy water rationing, like mm-hmm. 100 mils per day each. Um, yeah. And they couldn't afford to, because of the atmospheric controls, couldn't remove water from the environment. So there's condensation forming on everything. Um, mm-hmm. They had to basically just keep on weighing in their suits, which must have been quite miserable. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know yeah. they're special suits designed to be weighed in, but I imagine there's a maximum capacity of weight they can hold. Yeah, they're not like still suits. But, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they're still suits, but there we go. Uh, let's not cross the streams there, the urine streams <laughs> there. <laughs> okay, kicking off, okay. carry on with the movie. That's Apollo 13. It's a great movie. And at the end, it's all happy. They find all these solutions to all these problems. Everybody gets down safe. Um, and the American public, who'd been all kind of like, bah, moon missions, lame, are suddenly glued to their sets because of this human drama unfolding. Uh, in near earth orbit and then then they stopped after they do any more actual moon landings after apollo yeah there was uh three more there was uh 14 oh no hang on my maths is wrong there was 14 15 16 and 17 so there's four more after that they had planned to go to 20 i think but they, they cut the final three because again interest was waning because you know it's only the greatest thing people have ever done and how boring is that after a while you know <laughs> i mean you know i don't know how they could have kept interest going, I suppose it's just. Uh, but yeah, but that's. Um, but that that, that well, they stopped at seventeen. Didn't they? Uh, didn't with the Challenger? I know that was a horrific disaster, but didn't it? Wasn't there kind of uh, impetus to try and uh, generate more interest in in the um, in space travel? Um, was was getting the the teacher? I think wasn't it? That, oh God! Yeah. Was, do you remember? Yes, yeah. Sally Ride. Yeah, That's Sally right, Ride. Yeah. yeah, and there was huge um, publicity about it, mm. wasn't there? Yeah, and I think there's, and also, of course, the next steps were to go further out and go to Mars and whatever. But the the, the logistics to get people to Mars were just incredible. But also, on the other hand, the whole process of robotics was getting better and better. So they switched from having manned missions elsewhere to robot missions elsewhere. And that's when we got Voyager, we got, you know, Pioneer and Voyager and those sorts of things. Um, and most of that kind of space exploration has been done by machines, really, since then. Uh, and it's only now that people are looking at going back and pe- sending people out up there. Um, uh, yeah. Which is a, it's a shame because, I mean, Perseverance was definitely my high point at the beginning of the year. Like watching that stream mm. of it, like, uh, landing was just so incredible i was just yeah. I was actually like loved up with humanity and i thought oh my god like this is how people must have felt way back in the 60s um on their postage stamp style black and white tvs um and uh I was like, oh my god, imagine how incredible this would be this was people uh landing and then imagine if it was elon musk mm. being flown to mars and that's a yes. nice trip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's the you know it's it's got to happen because otherwise you know it's the you can't run a proper civilization on the surface of a at the bottom of a gravity well. I mean, you know, technologically, resource-wise, you know, philosophy, human expansion, human endurance, or well, the whole thing is it requires requires something bigger than just one planet, and we it has to happen at some point. And we've just basically been kicking our heels for fifty years, and we might have lost the window for doing that. It might be that you know. 
uh, well, we can talk about Fermi paradoxes some other time, but well, we that, could have just fallen the, um, foul of that particular thing. Well, that and the the floating shrapnel cloud that we've um, put into not just into the cloud. Yes, when a piece of hypersonic human frozen feces just plunges <laughs> through the side <laughs> of your craft and explodes you. Um, <laughs> But it's, it's, yeah. it's like it's even it's the it's the really dangerous ones. They're like the little bolts and things because every time you've got yeah. like a separation yeah. rocket, they'll fire off the bolts um, separately mm. on the assumption that they'll just kind of sort themselves out. And there's um, hundreds and thousands. Of, I mean, how many is it? The they're tracking hu- literally hundreds of thousands of pieces of known debris in space, mm. and they reckon there's like millions and millions more they don't even know about. Um, yeah. And it's just kind of like the the chances are ever increasing that eventually we're going to have a serious collision. And as soon as you get that first serious collision, you exponentially increase the chances because of all the shrapnel that generates of kind of a cascade of just things exploding and smashing into each other. And the next thing you know, you literally can't leave the Earth's surface anymore. I'm sorry, well, you can't leave a job. the Earth's atmosphere anymore. There's a job for any younger listeners out there is, you know, space well, sweeper. they could just get Gerard Butler to punch it out of the sky, couldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> He has a pretty good job of doing things like that, so. <laughs> so that's Apollo 13, the movie and the thing itself, and Apollo 13. Um, what about constructionism? Um, I guess was- before we get into it properly, mm-hmm. can I just say that one of the reasons we're doing this episode is because I, it turns out, have a mental block on constructionism and always confuse that with constructivism. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the run-up to this episode, repeatedly called it social constructionism, which I'm now relatively sure doesn't exist. It does. Um, oh, bloody hell. Oh, it, it just, does. It, it goes deeper Becky and deeper. has just spent ages researching it because she thought this was going to be on social constructionism. <laughs> isn't so it, it exists. Isn't... It's a thing. It's a thing, yeah. Oh, thank God. Okay. Um, so, yes. Yeah, so, so part of this is has been to, to allay my own... <laughs> horrible and embarrassing ignorance about uh, about what uh, constructionism is so who wants to kick us off i think that's my job isn't it and unless becky have you got a <laughs> no i like you mike i was uh yeah i was going along with the whole social constructivism thing and um yeah i yeah no you you carry on mark because okay. um, you're gonna be okay so let's go back constructivism is that whole cognitivist thing of students, learners, build ideas in their heads. So what you're doing when you're teaching them is to help them build their own ideas as they're going along. That's constructivism. And that's kind of one of these big, overall, overarching concepts in education. This is how people learn. And so you're looking at lots of different sorts of constructivism, but that's the overall thing. So now, social constructivism, is the idea that students build that whole idea of the things in their heads, those ideas and building up on them, constructing things, through talking to other people. So social constructivism is a subset of constructivism. And we covered of, it in our episode on social constructivism and it uh, yes. a couple of episodes ago. Although, yeah, although it does draw in things like situative learning and classroom learning and all that sort of thing. So, But it's, but it's a big chunk of it. It sits within the whole constructivist thing. Now... Um, constructionism is the idea that, you, that, that it's, it's another version of constructivism, but it's the idea that people build up those models in their heads by actually making tangible things. So it's it's actually by physically making stuff. And you'll have come across constructionism if you watched The Toys That Built Us, The Toys That Made Us. It's in the Lego episode. Oh, yes. Ah. Um, oh. So, because Papert is one of the guys that started off constructionism, and then Lego built with his old Mindstorms thing, and then Lego built Mindstorms, Lego Mindstorms, based on Papert's theories, and that's they got drawn into that. No so, way. And those are all the those are the way the different educational things all fit together. Now, social constructionism isn't a pedagogical theory, which is so best not to go into too much, but it's this whole idea that things within values and things within society are don't have an objective reality they're entirely built up by the way that society gives values to things so like so fashion is a social construction 
Oh, it, I see. So, or oh, um, bloody else, hell! You know, so, there's a, so religion, I guess, is a social construction. Those sorts of things. So, it's basically that we get together as society and make stuff that only has doesn't have a visible, tangible thing. Okay, so clothes are tangible, but fashion is a social construction because that's the difference between good clothes and bad clothes, and that's a value-ridden thing. So, that's that's what social construction is. Um, so is there a cultural specificity with that then? Yeah, it's basically it's something that only exists because society exists. Okay. If you didn't have society, if you, I mean, not 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 only that we're not making it as a society because obviously we make things, but it's that values and communication and sharing of ideas is only is the only basis of that reality. If you see what I mean. So a book, oh, is I, not, a book is not social construction. But literature is in that kind of way, really, in that, you know, what's great literature and what isn't is a social construction. Okay, social this is this is massively, massively clarifying things for okay. me now in an embarrassing <laughs> way. Oh, quite, do you know what? Why, why can't they just label things so, like, you know, more distinctly? Yes. Constructionism, social constructionism. One would naturally assume that the two are related as opposed <laughs> to not being related. Can't it be called... Piaget, Piagetism, and Acabarism, or something. Well, that's, just to... that's just as bad because you've got to know who Piaget is. Ah, yeah, but you'd be like, oh, Piagetism. Oh, yeah, there's that yeah. thing about mm, making yeah. stuff and how it's good for doing the learns. Yeah, no, I would prefer constructivism is it's built in your headism. Social constructionism is it's built in your headism by talking to peopleism. And then constructionism is it's built in your head by building things, building things in realityism. No, building things in your hands works better for me. Building things Let's in scan. okay, building things in your hands. Building. <laughs> I mean, I would say a, a digital artifact is tangible in a way. You know, it's not something necessarily you hold, but you could by getting together, creating. I mean, a podcast is uh, creating a podcast and learning by creating a podcast is constructionism, basically. Yes. Oh, because you're using technology, right? Okay. When you're making a thing. You're making a podcast, and okay, so you could yeah. talk about the theory of podcasting and talk about examples of podcasting. But actually, by learning, by making a podcast and seeing what bits work and what bits don't, and editing it and all that sort of thing, and then making another one, that is, and it overlaps a lot with design-based education and things. But that is what constructionism is. And if you like, it's the same. It's got a lot of similarities to the Blooms because the pointy bit at the top of Blooms, which is about create, uh, Crathwell's Bloom, any Blooms anyway, is about production. And so yeah. all the other things build up towards production. And so, you know, so that's, that's why, you know, so that's what it is. Yeah, it's kind of creation. And it doesn't, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it doesn't distinguish between digital and inverted commas real, which is a conversation we've had a couple of times in that they are the same. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I, it's there are some things. I mean, if you're getting together and building, say, a Lego model with a group of people around a table, and then you're seeing which bits work and which bits don't, I think there is something because there's something tactile about that, and because you are all there's something more immediate about it because you're all in the same space. Then I think it maybe works in a slightly different way, but that's only because I think the technology hasn't doesn't replicate that effectively still at the moment. And I think once we get to a point where you can, and I mean, if you're creating something in a virtual world like Second Life, and some you've got an avatar there, and somebody's creating a prim, and somebody's attaching another prim, and so on, and then you're looking at it and revising it, that comes very, very close to actually creating a physical thing, and it's so close that you probably couldn't tell the difference. So there, are, so yeah, so I wouldn't, you know, and I mean, the constructionist projects I've done have been about creating digital artifacts. And I mean, yeah, so we could talk about that a bit. Yeah, well, I think, I, I mean, from my perspective, I think it's um, the distinction between digital and inverted commas real um, is irrelevant depending on whether or not the actual creation and the target medium are related to what you're trying to teach or learn. Yeah, um, well, let's not use real, let's use physical, because oh, physical, yeah, physical and digital yeah, are both, both real. Uh, yeah, uh, Basically, yeah, I've fallen into the trap of doing that. <laughs> um, so, I mean, should we give some examples? Um, well, what what I have was in relation to paper, it, paper, which is who you said about Mark, um, mm -hmm. and uh, it said paper's constructionism assumes constructing one's knowledge, just like constructivism, using code as a language to invent or to inquire. By inventing constructionism, 
paper successfully predicted the use of technology as seen in the current maker movement and increased use in uh, of programming in science labs to collect and analyze data. When did he do that? Oh, uh, 2000, was it? 2000? And that's what Mind, Lego Mindstorms does. It's about getting kids to, it's kids really, uh, kids to learn to code by actually showing them immediately the results of their coding. So, you know, it's little robots crawling around on the floor and doing stuff, and you know, with Lego as well. Uh... And, and that's kind of, so, you know, right at the core of it, it's not necessarily about making physical things because coding obviously is a digital thing, but that still, you know, that still exists as a, as an artifact. And that is a really interesting prediction to have made at the beginning of 2000s because, yeah, the, the maker movement is awesome. I love the maker movement. And, yeah, the, I, had, I had a couple of um, just a couple of uh, points that I picked up, which was uh, some Piaget and some Ackerman. Uh, so just a couple of box quotes that I liked and felt like they described it quite nicely. So you had uh, Piaget's building knowledge occurs best through building things that are tangible and shareable. And then Ackerman, uh, so this was in relation to children, but saying they're builders of their own cognitive tools as well as their external realities, and that knowledge and the world are both construed and interpreted through their actions and mediated through symbol use. But one thing that I just kept on coming back to was this whole having stuff public. So mm-hmm. make, not just making um, uh, you know uh, artifacts for the sake of making stuff, although you know as a as a serial maker of stuff uh, i totally support that but making it so that you can make it and share it and put it out there a to you know share with other people but also to be part of and participate in a dialogue on that subject which you know podcasting is a great example of um i say this on the basis that we're having a dialogue and it's already challenging my crazy ideas on what social (laughs) constructionism is and that's papert's key thing as well is it's not it's it's not just that building the thing enables you to reconceptualize things yourself it's also that building things is a, is a communal process and so therefore you've got the social constructivism built into constructionism to a large extent because normally while you're making things you're re- you're communicating with other people and building that socially so mm. so i think that's that's a key part of that whole thing as well and that all brings us right back to communities of practice and that whole idea of boundary objects and sharing those boundary objects as being part of being drawn into that community and so you know there's always links between these different theories but we can see how something like constructionism then builds into being part of what makes a community a community yes and i guess problem-based learning as well because the kind of projects that might pull together to generate these kinds of things actually no maybe not no no you're right i mean this is why actually the coming up with a set of approaches and things and calling them this is this and that is that and so on is fake because it all is just learning and teaching anyway and all we're doing is exploring different facets of ultimately the thing that's the same it's it's all the same thing anyway it's all part of the same mix yeah i was thinking as well in regards to just generating digital you know a generating digital artifacts and the popularity of it uh, and I guess I was just thinking about how when you're generating most digital artifacts, be it a Word document or an image, video or podcast, even if you're not doing it with others, you're just doing it as a little one-man band by mm. yourself. By creating something for other eyes, even if other eyes aren't going to see it, you are participating in kind of like a at least a one-sided dialogue. So you are it's a, it's a communication. Well, um, eventually it's not one-sided it because you get feedback. And what drives the podcast, what we do, I mean, you know, there's a good example is, it's the it's the people out there that make the difference. But you know, it is it's the you get that feedback. And although we're doing this in isolation now, it's part of a process by which we have an audience, which then feeds back to us, and that's a key part of it. Absolutely. And um, we were going to talk about were we going to talk about some examples, or have we kind of covered yeah, them? Yeah. Well, I've got a very I've got one key one that I'd like to talk about, which is a project I worked on with uh, five schools, and it was European thing where. Um, there were the, the the kind of idea was that children in different schools around the around Europe in, weren't getting excited by their own national literature. So what we did as the project was we got teachers in these five schools to get the kids to create their own digital artifacts 
based on those natural those national literatures so and then share those between the schools and it was really worked i mean you know it's it's it just shows that constructionism is a very good tool for getting people to learn because the 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 activities were they were more engaged not only were they more engaged they were engaged for longer because it took a while to create these videos which meant they were working on those texts for longer so they got deeper into what those texts were all about and they would make things like we we had the Danish school were making stuff out of Lego, obviously, but it was Bible stories. So we had you know walk around a classroom and see kids doing um, the parting of the Red Seas and things like that out of paper and Lego, and there's a little Lego Moses and all this sort of thing. And then they would turn them into videos, or they turn them into comic strips was another popular one, or we even had them make and turn them into Top Trumps cards and things like that, and then playing Top Trumps with each other. And it, it was, you know, and it was, it was really, I mean, I don't think it got them to, it didn't, we, because I did the stats and <laughs> the statistical analysis and it, it didn't actually make them want to read more, but it did make them love learning about their literature more. And I think that that was the main aim of the project. But what also happened, we noticed within those, with those classes was it wasn't just, here's a book, make the video. It was, there was a, and I made some notes, which I now can't find, so I'm just going to have to do it from memory. But it was, um, <laughs> it was a series of, let's talk about the book, let's reflect on it, let's talk about the type of artifact you want to make, now let's go off and make that, now let's reflect on it. So it was never just go ahead and make this, it was always part of a process of classroom reflection, instruction from the teachers, kind of collaboration about where you would go go next so it it, so i think it was about 10 points and all these schools came up with these these things independently more or less but i think that's the key thing about constructionism in the classroom as well is that you can't just say make this it's got to be built into a cycle of instruction reflection collaboration and then the next stage in the creation process and that's that's a, I think that's where people, when they try constructionism and problem-based learning and all these other things, go wrong is that they just they don't have enough guidance as they go through. Yeah, it's it's, it's not a bolt-on. No, and it's not a go off and do this. It's not it's not a, an extreme, you know, independent sort of thing. And this is a, I mean, we talked about Paul Kirshen before, and his his minimal guidance and his 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 complete antipathy towards that which is absolutely true but where that ends up being fake is that no very few people are doing this with minimal guidance it's a straw man argument because you're arguing against something which very very rarely happens you know you do need this instruction as you're going through but you still let the people make stuff because it's the making stuff that really inspires them and gets them to be excited about make about make about keeping going and also there's the thing about when you have to present these ideas to somebody else, you have to dig in a lot more. You have to analyze and reflect and think about it a lot more because you're having to re-present it to an audience. And that makes it means that you have to think about it in a lot more depth as well, which is, again, is part of the whole Blooms thing. Well, that's certainly something I've found useful in, A, making this podcast, mm-hmm. and B, I do a lot of um, kind of dumb infographics and things uh, for stuff I'm doing at work, mostly because... Yeah, it generally makes you kind of think about and boil things down to their essences, yeah. and really kind of a work about what you're tr- work out what you're trying to communicate in them, and also whether or not that's right. Yeah, and there's something about just turning an idea around in in your head in order to present it to other people that makes you consider it from multiple angles. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, Becky, with, do, do you have any um, any examples from your own experience? I'm thinking specifically about those um, essays and treaties you've been writing on uh, on films. Well, I mean, obviously, like you were saying with the infographics, you know, you're distilling information, uh, you're synthesizing it, and then sort of finding your own sort of perspective out of that or your own um, sort of stance, I suppose. Um, And, you know, I kind of forget that I'm sort of sat there just uh, sort of taking in all these arguments, and then I'm kind of uh, finding my own uh, sort of um, assessment of it through those and um, yeah it just it's kind of second nature to me now and don't and I don't really think about it in that uh, in that way but yeah I guess that could be uh, that could be an example you know um, uh, you know I'm creating meaning from not just the the text itself but um, you know from the arguments that are being made about about the text and just kind of seeing how it all fits together 
yeah so very interpretive i guess i suppose that's actually that's an interesting sort of thought um is that um when we're being hip and trendy and talking about constructionism we can still mean essays and writing yeah um because yeah, i think uh, yeah I, th- I wonder if people mentally put them in different bins in their head yeah i did um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's still like it's still an act of creation um and yeah. therefore and and therefore you know i, th- I think yeah still falls with it, well within um, constructionism and i think the more that actually now because of things like um you know google docs and other collaborative platforms are available um <laughs> that you know they're no longer somebody sitting at home in their study or whatever with just the thoughts inside the head they're actually fulfilling Pappet's dream of coding which is that it's a collaborative or it's bouncing back or it's exchanging ideas and being part of a community is as you're creating these documents you might be drawing on you know people's other people's feedback on it and even uh, and you know have a collaborative document where people are contributing different bits and so that's just like the coding thing that he had in mind when he was coming up with his mindstorm stuff and it's oh. you know it's kind of converging into very similar things because the technology enables us to to create co-create these things as tangible things and i think yeah it's that tangibility again go yeah sorry uh cut me off there <laughs> you were so, you were so yeah. close no 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 i was going to go back into tangibility and reification and venga trainer and community oh, okay yep and that all needs to go because that it was just be another another little rabbit hole <laughs> and, and and you do need to go at three o'clock <laughs> yeah <I know. laughs> okay we'll do we'll do we'll do an uncut special sometime we'll, we'll set up a patreon page <laughs> yeah. and have a crazy uncut special yeah, be... we just randomly point well i think at some point we need to pull all these we don't need to pull all these together but we could have a random walk through all of these and show how interconnected everything really is that'd be fun let's just do it we'll do we'll do it and we'll just start talking about it until we stop seeing connections and then we'll stop the recording (laughs) and we'll we'll publish it and then people can use it to um i don't know talk people off bridges um, or put the children to sleep no it would be talking people onto bridges oh no but they'd be so interested they wouldn't want to jump they'd be like oh my god i want to hear more of that (laughs) It's like I can't stand anymore. I'm going to jump. <laughs> oh, he's just—he's just confused constructionism with constructivism. Right, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is all getting cut. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, but, but this bridge is just socially constructed anyway. Yeah, yeah. it's not a real bridge. Oh, wait, no, no, it was definitely <laughs> it re- real. I'm plunging to my death. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so uh, transition. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, I think we've. Uh, pretty well covered uh what constructionism is then and the movie apollo 13 so let's bring them together in the second part of our show where we answer our question how did the apollo 13 crew use constructionism to return safely to earth part two the answer okay so how did the apollo 13 crew use constructionism to return safely to earth well what they did was and you know my terms are going to be very simplistic i'm afraid i'm afraid so yeah don't expect any um you know terminology here but um they there was a you know you had the specialists in mission control and they essentially got together in a room and the equipment that they would have had on the apollo 13 lunar module is that right mark yeah on the, yeah uh, uh, on i don't the, know oh no yeah so this would be so this is this is in specifically in, in reference to the um the issue with the carbon dioxide build up carbon yes. dioxide scrubbers yeah. not being able to remove okay uh, all the excess guff from the atmosphere so they got the taken from the command module to the lunar module they did, and I and I I'm not sure whether it was before they went into the uh, lunar module, which became their lifeboat, or or after. But essentially, they were given all of the equipment that they have on that module in a room, and they had to create something out of that while in a continuous dialogue with the module. I think mm-hmm. in space, and that's the only bit I re- that's the bit I really remember is they they go into they have this room. And they say, these are all the things that are on the command module, the lunar module. Chuck them all on a table and go, right, we've got to make this fit, that square thing going to fit that into round hole. Get on with it with this kit. Yeah. And none, yeah, of, it they... was, none of it was like, let's think through it, this through. It was like, there's the physical stuff. Get on with it. But I think that's really interesting because um, it was Mark. 
was saying about the Apollo 11 mission where um was it was it Buzz or um I can't remember one of the okay two. yeah uh, where they used a, a biro to mm-hmm. you know kind of as a makeshift um uh switch uh, switch um and it's just that kind of immediate thinking immediate problem solving mm. that i think occurred at that point so they were armed with all this knowledge and they just you a bit like you know the whole kind of um you know playing a chess game uh, thinking about uh your moves like four or five ahead you know and, and they must be in that mindset continuously and you know to be able to problem solve that quickly is quite incredible i think yeah and particularly because the people back on the spaceship are kind of in, in danger of imminent death and they're still yeah. to do all this thinking um so but yeah and of course the people on the ground also kind of they're under stress as well and they're still getting on and doing it and things like that um so the uh, the actual problem itself was that yeah there was the carbon dioxide scrubbers couldn't scrub the carbon dioxide they had some other scrubbers from the command module but they didn't fit mm-hmm. in the uh, in the lunar module so they had to kind of um it was uh, improvise some method of getting the two to connect uh, with a relatively airtight seal in order to get the things to work. Uh, it was the fil- was it filters or something? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah so yeah, it's uh, the yeah the people on the ground have a total replica of everything that's up in space. They um, yeah they create they work together to create this um, this solution um, while talking to the people upstairs and then sort of talking them through the process and how to create it themselves in order to uh, to actually kind of bring it to fruition. Yeah. Uh, and now I think about it, is this an example of constructionism? Or is yes, it problem-based learning? Well, or it's, is this just a problem? It's, well, we've said it's very similar. There's a very similar processes anyway, really. I think mm. what's also interesting about this is there was a member of the crew that was actually didn't get to go. Uh, Mattingly was um, yeah. trained with two of them and couldn't get to go because he'd been exposed to um, rubella. Um, um, which we called German measles back in the 70s, but um, it's changed its name now for some reason. Um, I suppose it's maybe it's anti-German. I don't know. Um, so anyway, so he'd, so he'd had this. And what's interesting is that, well, I found it interesting, was that um, they'd already had two, that the original crew had been uh, eliminated, not, not physically, like literally, but Jesus. You know, they'd, they'd been scratched, I should say, because I think one of them had been having an affair and, the, and another one had like been just been too lazy and hadn't been doing the training properly. The backup team had been scratched because one of them had an ear infection. And this was the second backup team that went. And normally what happens with these is that if one person can't do it, they train together so intensively that they are actually a complete unit in themselves. Those three astronauts together are a complete unit. So if one of them has a problem, all three of them get the entire team get scratched. So basically, what should have happened was because Mattingly had been exposed to rubella, that whole team should have been scratched, but they couldn't because the backup team had also been exposed by Mattingly or whoever to that to the to, to rubella as well. So they couldn't replace them with a scratch it with the, with the backup team. So you had this unique situation where you'd got two parts of the team on the mission and the third member of the team on the ground, and that wouldn't normally have happened. And I think there's something about the fact that Mattingly's on the ground interacting with the t- his two mates that he's trained with intensely that actually makes it work as well. Okay, yeah. So thinking about the characteristics of constructionism and how, they're, how we see them displayed in this, in this kind of, I guess, group project, this fun group project, uh, <laughs> this low-pressure assessment um, that they've got. So they are, as a group, they are creating an artifact which demonstrates their shared knowledge mm-hmm. no, they, no they're creating shared knowledge by making an artifact it's the other way around that's the key thing because they don't know how to make these scrubbers so they're uh-huh. actually make scrubbers fit together so they're actually making them on the fly and trying things out they don't have the knowledge to start with and they create that knowledge they construct that knowledge by constructing the actual artifact aha uh-huh. so it's constructing the knowledge the knowledge of the solution Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha, gotcha. By yes, okay, yes. There we go. Um, there is, I mean, there is dialogue. I mean, it's a shareable artifact. It's literally mm-hmm. shared because they share it with um, them up in space. Mm-hmm. Um, There's an intrinsic trust within the team because Mattingly yeah. is actually part of the team, and he then communicates that. So I don't, 
it's not essential that you're all together physically, but it is important that you're all together emotionally, you trust each other, and you can think. You know, there's a thinking that goes on when you've worked together with people a lot and made things together. There's that kind of shared mindset that really helps as well. Hmm. Yeah, like a synchronicity. Yes. And knowledge being interpreted through action, which I guess it does do. Yes. And also looking out the window. You know, it's like, let's not get theoretical about this. Let's actually go and look and make have, and have that observational on the ground or out in space by the moon kind of interaction with what's going on in order to f- add to our knowledge. Refer- I say, referring back to the uh, let's look out the window bit, there is actually a specific bit where they do need to just look out the window. Yeah. Because, yeah, it's, the, it's uh, where they're looking at the pressure gauges uh, for the oxygen and trying to work out if there's actually, if it's a, um, if it's a reading error or a um, uh, an actual kind of like you know depressurization, and then they look out the window and see, yes, it's most definitely a, a depressurization. Yeah, because you can see the gas venting. Okay, um, <laughs> I'm going to I'm going to do that horrible thing. Just to summarize a summary of a summary, uh, in reference to this specific incident where they had to work with the ground crew, and the, well, the ground crew had to work with them in order to create um, a way to fit the uh the command module carbon dioxide scrubbers to the lunar module uh fittings uh, in order to be able to carry on breathing without um suffering from carbon dioxide toxicity they had to work together pull in their existing knowledge in order to build a new understanding a build and construct a new understanding between them of how they could join those two components the artifact they generated was the understanding of how that solution of how that problem could be solved of what that solution was as well as of course the physical model they made on the ground and then ultimately the version that they made up in space it was part of a dialogue um, it was created as part of a dialogue between the team on the ground themselves and the people up in space um, and was a public entity was shareable was an artifact and was it was a tangible output there you go i've run out of steam how, how, how close am i i think that's brilliant yeah it's good i think okay, buried, well, I, I think you buried the lead though which is that without any knowledge they well with, with very little knowledge they constructed knowledge by actually physically building an artifact and then use that artifact to get them out of the trouble and i think that you mentioned that but i think that's the key thing in the middle there is not knowing what to do, they made something, and then by making something, they understood the answer. Oh, I see. That's much better and shorter. That was like I'm looking at the waveform for my blabber, and it's the length of my screen, and then you just summarise that up in like two inches of waveform. Um, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, but Mark is like the pedagogy guru, though, isn't he? <laughs> Doctor of. Yeah. <laughs> Doctor pedagogy. Okay, cool. So. Um, uh, before I move on, are we are we satisfied that we've answered our question? Are we satisfied yeah. with the answers that we've reached? Yeah, I'm happy with that. I couldn't articulate it, but yes. <laughs> okay, so um, we've just about answered our question. I say we've just about answered our question. I've blathered through the uh, the answer, and then Mark has summarised it much more efficiently. Um, let's very briefly move on to how we can use it in our teaching in the final part of the show. Part three: Practical tips for your own teaching. Okay, my, my big one is that uh, making stuff is excellent. Um, and I had this practical tip in my head from before we even started recording the episode because I think that making stuff is brilliant. Always been my favourite part of um, any learning experience uh, has been the bit where I actually get to sit down and make something. Um, and I hope that's not peculiar to me, but it's the bit that always interests and excites me the most. Uh, it doesn't matter what the medium is. I think it's always cool and it's just a great way to um, enjoy what you're learning as well as, you know, actually kind of, you know, think about it in different ways and express it and uh, and kind of condense it uh, into into tangible outputs you can then take away and enjoy and love and revisit and, and listen to again and be like oh i remember what um the dunning kruger effect is for example <laughs> if you listen to our previous episode so yeah that's my my big uh, practical tip is just do it like do it do it all the time do it loads have it in every course every every module that you make should have some element of this in there um yeah do it there you go that's fine <laughs> i totally agree with that um there is a danger in that that students that are normally academically able 
and think academically can actually then get alienated by that. So it's finding ways to reassure them that, you know, they've still got something to contribute um, because often it's the ones that aren't very good at making stuff or aren't very good at sharing or um, working with others that, that are have been excelling up to that point. So sometimes they can be alienated by that process, but it is so effective. It's such a fun thing for most people to do that you've got to do it. It's, it's you totally agree with what you've just said, but it's just finding ways to reassure those that feel maybe alienated by, by doing that. I totally agree. Yeah. And I, I think, um, yeah, definitely, uh, you know, great, great opportunity for, you know, building new skills and developing new skills and everything. And, um, and if it's scaffolded as well would make it even more accessible for, um, those students who are more academically, uh sort of minded i guess yeah it's got to be um scaffolded otherwise people can lose their way or not focusing on on the the actual things you want them to focus on and they can get sidetracked by oh let's get this edit right rather than let's let's learn the thing we're making the video about or whatever um it's also great because there's a whole range of different skills that often students that don't get the chance to shine in the classroom get to do so it could be oh this person's really good at editing or this person's really we want to crochet this particular you know we've got this concept and we want to crochet <laughs> version of it and you find somebody that's brilliant at crocheting or you know in the, in the the uh in the project we did there were some students that were brilliant at english and so when it came to communicating to the other schools they had a chance to shine and i think that's the thing that that when you get these things created collaboratively and everybody gets to contribute then it not only creates a, you, you need a good social situation to start with, like you know Mattingly with the other two guys, but also it can create better strong links as well because everybody's sharing and, and sharing their, their own specific skills. So it's great from that yeah. point of view as well. I'd give people opportunities to do it outside of group work as well because mm-hmm. yeah, I think in, in group work itself is its own kind of very complex thing to to design as a as a teaching event. Mm-hmm. As much as anything, because people traditionally hate them, hate group yeah. work for for a variety of reasons. But but at the same time, yes, it's really important because you know research shows in lots and lots of ways that it's disgustingly valuable for everybody involved, even if they don't particularly look forward to it. But yeah, I'd give people opportunities to do it individually, at least to yeah, as you say, scaffold those skills up. And just thinking, sorry, back to the the balance um, in comfort levels between um, you know your academically gifted students um, and the um, the creative dullards. Um, of which I very much classify myself. Um, not dullards, but just not people who haven't traditionally excelled in academic environments. Yeah, um, I, I, I definitely don't. I definitely, definitely don't. No. Um, and, it, you know, I do feel that um, a lot of higher ed is definitely kind of geared very much more towards um, those who are, well, Absolutely. by nature, I suppose, academically gifted than, um, you know, the uh, the metaphorical kid on top of the, uh, the flat-roofed um, classroom. Uh, with an air rifle shooting pigeons. <laughs> and often it's um, not about being gifted, it's about being interested. Yeah. And so some mm. people might actually be really good at it, but they just don't want to just think conceptually. They get something about that physical, tangible thing that they can then all work on. And we've seen from the movie that by doing that, you, it just generates things that, that you wouldn't obviously otherwise have seen. So it's worth doing. Yeah. And I guess, you know, from the from the teacher's perspective as well, it's about they should know, understand and know their students well enough that they can draw on their strongest set of skills, you know? Uh, yes, absolutely. And that's that's one thing we found from that project was the main thing we got back was the teachers found it more fun as well. It There was yeah. more conversation going on in the classroom. There was more engagement and also it broke down barriers because suddenly they weren't the experts on everything, that the students could do things they couldn't. Oh, I like And that. by that kind of equalising process, it meant that everybody was more engaged and, and it was nice. It was just pleasurable, comfortable. And I think that's the sort of environment in which people learn better. Obviously, it's not necessarily the people. <laughs> that, that bit doesn't apply to Apollo 13. But, you know, uh, for most people, (laughs) I think in most learning situations it does. And also to go back to collaborative, yeah, I I take on board the group work thing. But collaborative isn't necessarily group work. It can be like, uh, you know, Becky's Joker chapter. It's writing it in isolation, but getting feedback and having that collaboration in bouncing ideas around with things that you've made and being out there and sharing it with the 
with uh, you know the wider community being oh, part like of that. it using yeah. it as a way into a community of practice makes a difference yeah using it as a, a tool to engage in dialogue yes that was another conversation rather than a roundup wasn't it no no apologies <laughs> apologies i um i know I, I i was literally just looking at my bullet point that said dialogue and i was like oh, i get to say my bullet point again <laughs> I apologize. You, haven't said, <laughs> you haven't said metacognition this time around <laughs> metacognition ding <laughs> So, yeah, so I think we've actually successfully managed to answer the question. I now feel like I vaguely know the difference between constructionism, constructivism, social constructionism, um, and a carbon dioxide scrubber. Don't know where I was going with that thought. Felt like it was, felt like it started in a good place and then drifted off, much like Apollo 13. Um, it's a bit of a disaster, really. Okay. Houston, we have a problem. Okay, so thank you very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on all of your favourite apps, feeds, iTunes, and at our website, pedagodzilla.com. You can also get in touch with us via Twitter. I'm at pedagodzilla. I'm at Mark Childs. And I'm at Becky Cohen, 1981. If you've enjoyed the episode, and we hope you did, we'd be obliged if you could please just share it. Share it with a friend, a family, your postman, a dog. Um, whoever you know just give it just have it tattooed on your forehead and then headbutt people so that a reverse of our URL is printed on their face um, <laughs> or better put it in reverse on your own head then headbutt them so then it's the right way round on their foreheads I-, I figured that when they looked in the mirror they'd see it the right way round oh cool because you can't see your own forehead can you oh yes another reason why you need <gasps> tangible artifacts in order to think things through properly this is true <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> well, I was going to cut that out, but now that all um, hangs together so well, I'm going to have to stay in. We hope you enjoyed the episode, and we'll see you next time on Pedagodzilla. Bye-bye now. Bye. Bye.